This is episode 500 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. There's an account in Matthew 9 where two blind beggars follow Jesus and continue to cry out to him, hoping to get his attention and receive their sight. After all, he had healed others. Maybe he would heal them also. Jesus, ignoring their cries, entered the house when these two men barged in, refusing to be deterred from their search for Jesus. When Jesus saw them, he asked them a simple question. He said this, do you believe I am able to do this? In essence, he asked them if they believe he had the power, the authority sufficient to give them back their sight. They answered in faith, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And the scriptures say their eyes were open. But what was the object of their faith? Was it in Jesus' ability to heal them? Probably. But they also had to believe Jesus was willing to heal them. Otherwise, they would have never followed him as they did and cry out to get his attention. And if you look at the sequence of faith in his healing account, you will find that belief in his willingness came before faith in his ability. Do you see what's happening here and how it relates to the higher Christian life? I sure hope so, because the implications are profound. So join with us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, when it comes to salvation, salvation is something that Jesus has provided for us. He's already done it all. It's already sufficient. He died on the cross for your sins and for your lost friend's sins. He has, his death is completely sufficient for the atonement of your sins to allow you to enter into a relationship with God and spend forever with him. All the promises of God that came through Jesus's death and resurrection are available to everyone who receives it. That's the condition. It's like they're out there. It's like this huge meal that's being set up of everything you ever want, but you're not force-fed. You have to come and choose to eat. You eat as much as you want, you eat as often as you want, you're nourished from it to the nth degree, but nevertheless, we have to receive when it comes to salvation. And when it comes to this intimate relationship with the Lord, this, as we're calling a higher Christian life, maybe based on where our experience is right now, it works exactly the same way. We have to come to this personal belief that God's promises are not just true in general, are true for someone else, but they're true for you. And that's the hardest thing to get a grip on because we have a tendency of believing that God is gracious to those people and God is loving to that person. But when it comes to us, we know what our heart is really like. We know about our hidden sin. We know about the things that just we and God know about. And there's no way if you were God, you would show grace to someone like you. Yet, we, and then we assume God is exactly the same way. So since this person I look up to is really spiritual, and boy, I wish I could be like them. I totally understand God's promises being true for them. But for me, with my self-doubt and my insecurity and my self-loathing and my shame, no, no, it's, it's not for me. And so there's this personal belief 
that we have to come to grips with as a foundation in order for these uh, promises to be real. I read the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6 before we began our time together, and the one we're going to focus on is verse 11, and the word we're going to focus on is the word reckon. One word out of 14 verses in Romans chapter 6. And he's talking about the old man being crucified, and if the old man is crucified, then we are crucified with him. Our sin nature and our sin is now gone. Therefore, since Christ was crucified and we're crucified, since Jesus was raised from the dead, then we're raised to a newness of life. So therefore, that's the truth. That's the reality. That's what's to be believed. But the question is in verse number 11, do you believe it? Is it real for you? Because if verse number 11 is real to you and you understand that I am indeed dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus our Lord, then verse number 12 follows explicitly. Therefore, based on me reckoning some truth, do not let sin reign in your mortal body because now you can because you are now dead to sin but alive to God. That you, should obey its, that you should obey its lust and do not, verse 13, present to members um, of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but now present yourself as instruments of righteousness to God. You can do 12 and 13 and 14 only if you believe and reckon what God says about you personally to be true. Not somebody else. Not the church in general, but you personally. Here's what he says. Likewise, you also reckon. Reckon. I mean, that's a strange word. Reckon. Reckon what? Reckon sounds like some country phrase. Hey, you think you're going to go to town? I reckon so. You know, what does that mean? I think I will. I might. I'm not really sure. I mean, growing up, that's the only time we ever used the word reckon. Reckon yourself, implied you also, you reckon yourself what? Well, just what Paul told us, dead indeed to sin, dead most certainly to sin, dead categorically to sin. That's the first thing I'm going to reckon. And number two, I'm going to reckon myself alive to God. Well, what is that based on? Well, it's based on the verses that we already read. It's based on the fact that our, verse six, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and I'm dead to sin, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. That's the first part. The second part is, now if we, verse eight, and if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, present tense, he lives to God. Likewise, in the same way, you also something. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God, how? In Christ Jesus. The whole crux of this higher Christian life that we've been talking about for six months is Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit living through us. It's surrendering and yielding our life to him. What I can't do, he can do. One of the things I'm gonna share with you this week in these um, recordings and uh, 
emails I'm going to be sending to you that I've already done a, a couple of them is the fact that one of the truths that you and I have to come to grips with is that it's absolutely categorically impossible, impossible for you in your flesh to do anything good, anything good. And so we have to quit trying because once I quit trying and striving and abide and rest, then everything that is good in me, everything that I do that's good is done by him. Rather than us on the treadmill, you know, the things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I, I do, I want to do, I don't do, and I'm trying and failing and ups and down and in and out and help me, oh God, what am I supposed to do? Stop, stop. And we let him do this through us by just staying connected as John 15 talks about this vine and, and the branches. He is the vine, you are the branch. Our job is to abide in him and bear the fruit he produces in us. But we'll be talking about that this week. Likewise, reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the key word is reckon. And it's a it's a word that has many different English kind of definitions. You know, it's an accounting term, uh, but it's also a thought process term. It's a commitment term. And so this is pretty much what it means. It means to deem, I've considered and I've deemed, account, impute is used a lot in Scripture, to think, literally to live as such, to Likewise, you also live as if you were dead to sin and alive to Christ. It means to put together in one mind, or the, or the definition that we always talk about, credit to your account. It's not something that belongs to you, but it's a credit to your account. It's like an infusion of something. You need to consider, you need to determine, you need to reckon, you need to settle it once for all in your mind and live according to that, that you are indeed dead to sin. But I keep sinning, got that. But I'm dead to sin, yet I am alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, here's the amazing thing about this word reckon. Uh, the way it's translated. Sometimes it's translated account, sometimes it's translated impute. But I want you to turn back two chapters to Romans chapter four. And I want to show you, and again, we're just gonna go through this really quick. I wish I could show you my Bible. You know, I've got the words, by the way, if you don't write in your Bible, please do. Um, hence, Bible, pages, pen, pencil, for those of you who like tablets. Um, the fact is that if you'll, when you write in, I circle a word and I key down here and circle this word and this word and this word. And so I'm able to chain and look all the way through the times this word is used and what word it's coupled with. And it's really shocking because as you go through this, you will find that the word reckon or impute or account or consider, this word we're talking about, is almost always associated with pistuo or pistis. It's always associated with believe or faith. I believe something, I have faith in something, and then I receive something. I believe or trust in, in what God said, and based on the virtue of me trusting in God's word, then I receive the benefit of that. 
I have something imputed to me. I reckon or consider or I live as if I'm believing exactly what God's word says. And it changes you on the inside. It changes your spirit. It changes the way you view things. First time it's used here is in Romans chapter four, verse three. Let me just read the first two verses. And what shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? What did he strive to do? What did he work to do to make himself righteous? And we know the answer, nothing. Because it says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You know, I'm trying really hard to, to do the right things, and I keep failing in the flesh, and, and I just get so angry with myself, and so it makes me want to take some sin and abuse. So every time I get ready to commit sin, I, I get real sick, like if it was alcohol or something of that. It doesn't work that way. There's a belief in what God says that changes us from the inside out and empowers us to do the work that bring about righteousness. Look what it says in verse number three. For what does the scripture say? That Abraham worked real hard to make himself righteous? No, Abraham believed. That's what he, he believed God, and it was accounted, credited, imputed, reckoned, same word, reckoned to him for righteousness. Now watch this. Um, in verse number three, we've got the word accounted, which is the same word for reckoned. You can circle that if you want. You can draw a line all the way down to verse number five, and we find it here again. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And then we find the same word in verse number six. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, same word, righteousness apart from works. We find it in verse number eight. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Verse number nine, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was, here's the word again, accounted to Abraham, uh, reckoned to Abraham, imputed to Abraham for righteousness. Verse 10, for how then was it accounted? How then was it imputed to him? And then we find the same word in verse number 11, towards the bottom of that passage, that righteousness may be imputed to them also. We go to verse 22 and moving on down, and we find this word all through this chapter. Well, that's interesting, Steve. That's a nice little word study. Uh, I'll go home and I'll get my blue letter Bible and I'll check and I'll see that, gosh, the Strong's number for that word is the same all the way through, even though it's translated, imputed, and accounted and stuff of that nature. Well, what's the point? The point is almost every time you see that word, what is imputed, the blessings that received by, by that is on, is on the basis of believing something, of having faith. Here, Abraham believed and therefore his belief and, and God was accounted to him as righteousness. He was deemed righteous because of his belief. He experienced an intimacy with the Lord because of something he believed. If you'll go back to verse number three, you'll find we have the word believed here. You're going to find it's pistus and pistuo, or pistus and pistuo, believe or faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse five, but to him who does not 
who does not works but believes, and then we have the word, of course, uh, uh, imputed in this sentence, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, we got both words now in this passage, we find, uh, we find faith in verse number nine, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for his righteousness. Uh, we find faith in verse number 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith. We find it in believe in verse number 11, faith in verse number 12, faith in 13, faith in 14, faith in 16, Faith in 17, or believe in 17, believe in 18, faith in 19, faith in 20. You see the point? In this chapter, it talks about an imputation of God, a truth that is given, an experience of righteousness or holiness or sanctification that is coupled with faith, personal faith. Abraham could have believed, well, yeah, I believe God can give me a son, I just don't believe he will. Matter of fact, that really was Abraham's belief in the beginning, so he tried to take matters into his own hands. Well, you know what? If it's my son, it doesn't necessarily have to be my wife's son, so here's Hagar over here and, and all that kind of, and, and you know what came from that, what we're still struggling with. Watch, watch. It seems, I wrote this out so that we make sure we get it right. It seems that faith or believing when accompanied by action, which is based on that faith, which turns faith into living faith and not dormant, stagnant faith, always produces something of value for the believer and imputes as a reality a promise or attribute or blessing to the one who exercised faith in God. Let that sink in. When I take a promise from God's word, and I act on that promise. I mean, unless I act on that promise and I line my life up with that promise, I don't even know if that promise is true or not. I can read about somebody else acting on the promise and it was true to them, but I don't think God will do that to me because I know what my heart's really like and, and you know, maybe God just partiality, maybe God shows favor and I know God can, I just don't think he will. But every time it seems like in scripture where we find faith, accompanied by action, that something based on that is imputed to the person who places this stale, stagnant, academic faith that God can into a living attribute of his faith that God will. It's, a, it's amazing. And when you're able to get hold of that, it like opens the door to this higher Christian life because it changes your entire relationship with God, that he's no longer someone who can but won't, but he's someone who can and will and is looking forward to blessing his children. Let me show you. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. I mean, this is it's really amazing. We're not going to spend time going through all these by faith statements talking about all the things that happened. But I, I want you to notice as you look through this chapter that it's always by faith they did something. By faith, against all odds, against maybe what they thought was going to happen, against what the world does, by faith they did something. Always. It's not just I believe God can. 
based on the fact that I know who God is, I will obey him. Verse 7, by faith Noah, well, he built an ark. Verse number 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place in which he would receive his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going because God said so, and he went. Um, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, verse 17, offered up his son. How crazy is that? By faith, verse 20, Isaac blessed Jacob. 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed the sons of Joseph. By faith, verse 23, Moses, and all the stuff that Moses did, and forsook Egypt in verse number 27, kept the Passover in verse number 28, went through the, the, the Red Sea. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Moses that night when all the people behind him are complaining and you've got Israel coming to destroy them and there's a sea in front and God simply says, if you'll just hold out your staff, I'll part the sea. Really? And he did by faith. Every time faith is coupled with a personal belief that not only God can't, I know you can, God, but I just don't think you will, so I'm not even going to come out of my tent. I'm just going to mope around because, you know, you, you may bless somebody better than me, but there's no way you're going to bless me. Every time we adopt that kind of attitude, it seems like God never does anything. It's not faith for the sake of some academic faith. It's faith that imputes in us something that's active, a a doing faith, something that gives us an opportunity to exercise that belief in him. Make sense? And this is where this blinders come off and you see God for who he really is. We sing songs to him. God, you're the ever-present one. You're the wonderful God. You can do anything you want. I just don't think you're going to do this for me. And so therefore, I have to take matters into my own hands or I'm just going to be depressed. Likewise, you also reckon yourself indeed to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what happens if you don't? What happens if you don't? I don't really believe, I don't consider, I don't act upon, I don't uh, reckon myself to be dead to sin but alive to Christ. I just, I know that's a promise that he gave for some people, but my personal belief says, no, I can't do that. I'm still a slave to sin. Everything that I want to do, I don't do. I'm, I just, I'm, God's not big enough to handle my problems. And since God's not big enough to handle my problems, there's no reason for me to tell anybody about what a wonderful God he is because he's not really a wonderful God because I'm still stuck here in the the morass of of my life because my faith is passive. My faith is academic. It's not exercised in believing what God says to be true about me. And this is this foundation that has to be established that you have to get your head around before any of the promises of God that lead to a deeper intimacy with him can become real to you. So let's take a personal assessment. Let's ask a couple honest questions and see where your relationship with God really is. I had to ask these for myself. You know, what keeps us from living a life like Abraham? 
uh, well, um, you know, Abraham heard God. And so therefore, if I heard God, if God would, uh, you know, appear to me in such a way that I knew it was him and not pizza I ate or something like that, then, then I would probably do it. Really? You know how many people I've talked to that jokingly say things like this? Well, if God wants me to quit my job and do this, or if God wants me to apologize to that person, or if God wants me to to give something I have to this guy over here, he's going to have to come to me in a personal form three times. Ha, ha, ha. And we laugh about stuff like that. Oh, that is a lack of faith. I mean, what, what, what would it take? Doesn't say how God met with Abraham. Doesn't say it was some angel or some experience. That, I mean, it may have been it may have been a dream. It may have been a vision. Maybe in a still small voice that says, I want you to leave your family and your friends and your business and your future and everything you've ever known. I want you to go to another place where you're probably not even going to speak the same language. And I want you to, when you're there, I want you to, to take that land for yourself. I don't have any money to buy that. I don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Where's this place going to be? I need to plot it out and I'll tell you when you get there. And I'm going to bless you as an old man with an old wife so much so that you can't even number your descendants. They'll be like the stars in the sky. <sighs> That's crazy. That's crazy. If I tell all my friends this, they're going to think I'm insane. How do we have the kind of faith they had in Hebrews chapter 11? What keeps us from having the faith that Moses had? I mean, to walk in to the king, earthly king of the world at that time, to Pharaoh with nothing in your hand but a stick and walk in there and say, let my people go, or this is going to happen, and then trust God that it's really going to happen. Even when the Jews turn against you, please don't go to Pharaoh anymore. He's making our job even worse. What hinders us from having the kind of faith we had when we first got saved, that we believe God can do anything? It's absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I feel his presence so powerful. I can't believe I ever doubted him. And then, of course, that has a tendency to kind of ebb and subside as we get older. What, what is it about us that's different than when we first got saved? To not necessarily achieve a higher Christian life than we've ever had before, but maybe just go from a seven to a 10. What's the difference? And I think it's really summed up in this statement. I know God can, and I know that he is able because I've heard all these sermons about the sovereignty of God. And I've seen the wonderful things he does. I know he can. I know he's able. I just don't think he will for me. Why? Is it a deficiency in God? No, it's just me. I don't think he'll do that for me. Why? Because um, I'm not worthy. Okay, so God only keeps his promise to people who are worthy. Well, well no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, so God just plays favorites. No, 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 that, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Well, what are you saying? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess it's almost like I had, this, I had my dad, and my dad had all the money in the world. My dad was a really rich guy, and it meant nothing to him. And when I was a little kid, what I wanted more than anything was a bicycle and a little you know, a cart, that, uh, the wagon that went with the bicycle. And I asked him for that. He got me this kind of smile and all that kind of thing. And, and I, I just, it's, it's what I wanted more than anything. And when my birthday came up, I opened it up and I got a scarf and socks. I knew, I knew my dad could easily give me what I wanted more than anything, but I just don't think he will. 
Why? Why? Because, and you fill in the blanks, because he's selfish, because he plays favorites, because he's just a, a miserly guy up there, because he delights in bringing us all the way to the end and never letting us cross over, because he likes keeping us under his thumb. Whatever the reason that your dad wouldn't do something like that. And by the way, that's a cruel man who does that, does he not? Whatever reason it is, we impute those things with God and we justify them by saying, no, it's not God that doesn't want to keep his promises to me. It's me. I'm somehow not worthy. Yet, were you worthy enough for Christ to die for your sins? Were you worthy enough for him to right now prepare a place in heaven for you to come back and receive you unto your, and himself? Are you worthy enough for any of that kind of stuff out there? Well, no but that doesn't bother you. You'll accept his mercy and grace out there, but can't accept his mercy and grace here. And whatever our answer is, it impugns the character of God. It grieves him. He can do anything he wants. I know, but I just don't think he will, at least not for me. He'll do it for Debbie. He'll do it for Tim. Maybe not Tim, but he'll do it for Debbie, you know. <laughs> but he won't do it for me. Why? And if we live that way and believe that way, listen very carefully, you will never experience the imputed blessings that come from having living, active, kinetic faith. Your faith will be academic, classroom faith, never tested and never acted upon because I just don't think God will, so I'll handle it my own way. And when we get to heaven, I, I don't really want to have a bunch of crowns to give to him. And I don't want to have a mansion. Just give me this little lean-to in the corner side by the Walmart parking lot in heaven. Boy, I hope there's not a Walmart in heaven. Uh, Walmart parking lot. And that's okay for me. And we think, well, that's humility? No, that's, that's almost blasphemy to him, to him who says that we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him. And there's nothing, height or death or life or death, nothing that will separate us from the love of a father to his children, except we receive to, refuse to accept it. Now, how does this play out? It plays out like this. I would surrender my life to God if I could trust him to truly take care of me, but since I can't trust him to do that, I guess I'll just have to keep looking out for myself. Well, why can't you trust him to take care of you? I don't know. My dad didn't take care of me, so therefore God and my heavenly father is just like my earthly father. Gosh, I hope not. Or I don't know, I'm just not worthy, or, or I don't know what it is, but since I can't trust him, I, I won't. I want to surrender my life to the Lord because I know he is God and he is sovereign and he can do anything he wants whenever he wants and no one can stop him. But I just don't think he will take care of me. I don't think he'll give me the desire of my heart. Maybe he'll give it to others, but not me. So therefore, I'll just have to keep looking out for myself. I'll not be able to surrender my life to him because I've got to hold on to my life because if I surrender my life to him, he will squander it. What a horrible thing to say about God. But until you come to this personal belief that God is not only able, which we pretty much all accept, but also willing, you will find that you will keep bumping him off the throne of your life and the stuff that's important to you, and you'll be, have to be satisfied with a seven, eight, or nine. 
and not a 12 or 15 or 20 when it comes to the Lord. What I want you to know is that God is not only able, but God is also willing, willing to experience the freedom from sin and shame and failure, which comes with the higher Christian life. If you've tried, you already know what that's like. You must first believe in the promises of God and then consider, reckon, have them imputed to you, count, determine, deem, live as such. Those promises are not for someone else, but those promises are for you. Even you, as messed up and screwed up as you are, as sinful as I am on the inside, yes, those promises are for me. And that issue must be settled in your mind once and for all. This is the foundation. Otherwise, if we say, well, here's the four steps to experiencing unbelievable intimacy with the Lord, and it has to do with believing a promise of God, you ain't going to believe it unless this foundation has been satisfied. It's not enough to believe he is able. You must believe that he is also willing. What kind of friend or father, when you come to him with a problem, hey, Dad, look, um, I'm, I'm kind of in trouble, uh, kind of messed up here, and I need your help with something. So, son, what do you need my help for? I'll be glad to help you. I can do anything to help you out. Well, here's my issue, Dad, something I can't handle. Will you help me? Because I know you can. And your father says, yes, I can, but I'm not. Why not? Is it because you're trying to teach me some lesson? Nah. Well, what is it? I just don't like you. I just, you just, you irritated me. You didn't eat all your beans last night. You forgot to mow the line. I ain't going to do it. You're going to suffer on your own. Just hang out there to die. I mean, what kind of father does that? And yet we assume and think it's humility that God treats us exactly the same way. And he doesn't. He doesn't at all. Watch this. I love this. And I only want to highlight a couple key phrases here. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him. How in the world did they do that? You know, they're following his voice, I guess, or the voice of other people. They're stumbling over, you know, things, bumping into trees. I have no idea. It must have been rather difficult for these blind men to follow Jesus. And as they're following him, maybe as they heard his voice and the voice of his entourage get further away, they cried out to try to get his attention. Son of David, have mercy on us. And then Jesus doesn't come back to them. He doesn't respond to them. He goes into a house. Maybe he's going into somebody's house to have dinner. He's sitting in the living room. He's talking to them at the, around the kitchen. Maybe they're sitting down for a meal and the blind men stumble into the house where Jesus is at. Jesus said to them, do you believe I am able to do this? Well, yes, Lord, absolutely. I believe you're able, you're God and king, and, and you're righteous, and I know you can. Next verse. He touched their eyes. Doesn't really matter how it happened, but he said this, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were open. Their faith in what? In his ability or his willingness? We always say it's based on his ability. And it's true. They believed Jesus was able to heal them, but their willingness came first. They would not have followed him. They would not have tripped over 
rocks and trees and shrubs and bumped into things and had other people tell him just to be quiet, stumbled into somebody's house that wasn't even theirs, two blind men, they would have not made the journey, cried out, please notice me. Hey, unless he believed, they believed, he was not only able but willing to do this. And since Christ now, of course, is trying to show himself as king of kings and lord of lords. That's why he asked about his ability. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes, but before they believed he was able, they believed he was willing. That's implied by all the things they went through just to get to him. Now here's what it really boils down to. Do you believe God is willing to fulfill his promises to you. I know he's able, and I know he's willing to do it for other people, but do you believe he's willing to do it for you? It's a question you have to answer yourself. Now to him who is able, well, I know God is able to do what? To keep me from stumbling and to present me faultless, faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Well, I know God is able. That, that's a given. But here's where it comes personal. You believe he's willing to do this for you. Or is he just going to, to keep your wife from stumbling and keep her, present her faultless before his glory, but not you? Maybe Billy Graham or maybe somebody at work or, or maybe somebody who's just has been more faithful over the years. Maybe God judges our character. Maybe God is a respecter of persons. Maybe God does play favorites. Do you believe, even with all the stuff that you've messed up, that he's willing to do this for you? I know he's able, but the promise doesn't become real and the experience of the higher Christian life or the imputed blessings in this life from believing this don't become real to you until you believe he's willing to do it for you. And what kind of God makes a promise to everybody else and not you? Isn't that horrible? And what we assume that's who he is? And our God is able to make all grace abound towards you. Wow, I know he's able to do that. And yeah, because he's God, he can do anything. And in such a way that you, what, but even me, yeah, you, always having all sufficiency and all things might have an abundance for every good work. I know God is able to do that for Carol, and I know God's able to do that for Tammy, but do you believe he's able to do it for you? If not, we impugn the character of God. And this promise will just be academic. Yes, I know he's able. Yes, God is sovereign. He can do all things. I'll fill that out on my essay and hand it into my systematic theology seminary class 101. And you get an A. Hallelujah. And your spiritual life languishes. It's got to be real to you. Yes, even you. How many times have we looked at this verse? Now to him who is able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. What, you? Is he talking about you? No, he's talking about the apostle Paul. He's talking about Peter. He's talking about all those other people. By the way, if God really shows favorites, Paul had a really bad temper and Peter was just... 
Peter was just wide open, was he not? Couldn't really trust Peter because he kind of messed up and yeah, he got better at the end and okay. And I mean, which disciple would you trust? Which disciple would be good enough? What, John? Okay, all right. So this only applies to John and not to everybody else. He's writing it to the church. Matter of fact, he says that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. We know he's able, but do you believe he's willing, willing to even bless you in a way that you can't even imagine in your mind? No, I don't. So I'm just going to expect, you know, beans and wieners from the Lord, and everybody else can eat steak and lobster and everything, but I'm just going to be satisfied with ramen noodles because uh, that's all I deserve. Well, yeah, but he promised everything. I know, but uh, I just can't accept it because I know what I'm really like. All right. And so you have this mental deficiency, this self-doubt and self-shame about yourself, and, and now you're superimposing that on God, on your Father? What? Why do we do that? Second Timothy, for this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, even in the middle of my turmoil. Why? For I know in whom I believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to do what, Paul? To keep what I've committed to him until the day I see him face to face. That I have not run my life in vain, even though right now I look like a failure. I'm in prison and the other churches are, are upset with me because I'm causing extra persecution for them. And it looks like it's over. If I lived this best life now, I wouldn't be in prison, but I am. So... Paul, what are you saying? Well, I know God is able to keep what I've entrusted to him, but I just don't think he will. And so therefore, I've run the race in vain. I've worked my life for nothing. I mean, why do we do that? One more. Therefore, God is also able to save to the uttermost not just partially saved, not just kind of saved, not just lean to saved, living in an abandoned car behind the Walmart in heaven kind of saved, but every promise he's made to every one of his children are made to you. You are complete in him. Well, okay, and no weapon formed against you will prevail. Well, okay, he's provided you spiritual armor with which just, just the shield of faith, you can extinguish every single fiery flaming dart or arrow the enemy shoots at you. Okay, for you, because he saves to the uttermost. We are complete in him. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Christ. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What, Christ is making intercession for me right now? I, I No, no, he's making intercession for Nick, but he's not making intercession for me because he's ashamed of me and he hates me and he doesn't even love me and, and, and he's just trapped in his sovereignty and so therefore I have to go to heaven, but it's just really terrible. I feel horrible. I mean, come on. If we don't believe promises are true for us, 
you will never, listen to me, never have the imputed blessing that comes from being what God says you are. It's a personal belief that each of us have to make. Yes, I believe God is true, and I believe his promise is true, you know, in and of itself like a true statement. But I just don't believe it's true for me. And that's where the failure comes. That's where, that's where we end up satisfied living in Laodicea, lukewarm, rather than in a vibrant relationship with the Lord, knowing that our Father loves us so much that everything he promised to any of his children are also true for us. Amen? Let me sum it up here. Once you believe that, the key to abiding and resting in him, the key to experiencing him as a a surety, the key to, to having the kind of faith that moves mountains is the fact that we rest in that. It's settled. It's reckoned. We've already determined that I, I have determined, I've reckoned, I considered, it's, it's done, that uh, I've accounted for, it's been placed on my account, it's done in my mind that this is who God is and this is who I am and those promises are meant for me today, right now. I'm resting in the, in the vine as a branch whose only worth is the fruit the, the vine allows me to bear. And the only way I'm able to be of value to the Lord or anybody else and fulfill my function as a branch is to just stay connected to the vine, surrender to the vine, yield to the vine. If I go my own way, I don't want to yield anymore. I want to actually be on that tree over there and cut myself off. I'm a branch that withers up and is worth nothing. It's already been provided for us. We just have to somehow take off this self-condemning hat. By the way, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that passage? Self-condemning hat and put on the hat of a cherished son who God loves so much that he gave the most precious element in the universe for, and that is the blood of his son for you. If you can believe this about yourself on this foundation, the higher Christian life, the life of a greater intimacy with him than you probably ever experienced is right around the corner. This may be your biggest stronghold and stumbling block is to believe that, yes, God, I know it's true for them, and I know that you're able to do it for them, but I don't think you're, able to, you're willing to do it for me. And that doesn't make you seem humble. That makes him seem weak and petty and selfish, and that's not who our God is. Amen? Let me pray.